You know, when you, uh, when you think of the idea of blindness, uh, it, it frightens people. In fact, in a recent survey done in 2014, the people fear blindness more than they fear the loss of any other sense, including the loss of memory. Um, in fact, more than half of Americans fear blindness more than they fear premature death or even heart disease. Helen Keller, you know the name, was a pioneer and a great spokesman for helping the blind and the deaf and the mute communicate. Um, she was once asked this question, isn't it terrible to be blind? They asked Helen Keller. And she responded, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. See, what we're going to look at blindness today on a physical level, and it is tragic. There is a greater tragedy in the blindness that we have in failing to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is Matthew's intent in writing a gospel. Matthew intends that we would see Jesus Christ as the king, bringing a kingdom, drawing people to himself. That's his intention. The first four chapters, if you think about it, he's just talked about the unique nature of Jesus as king. I mean, he talks about him being from Abraham and being from David, being born of a woman and yet being born of the spirit without sin, and then worshipped by these magi, tempted by darkness, preaching the gospel. First four chapters are just unique about his kingly nature. But then in chapters 5, 6, and 7, you see the unique teaching of this king in the Sermon on the Mount, that he's instructing how we behave in this kingdom. And then chapters 8 and 9, if you remember, we looked at the power of the king, right? The power of a king, we saw those 10 miracles. They all were confirming the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, but it also shows the nature of his kingdom. It's a redemptive kingdom that he's restoring all things to its perfect condition. And then in chapters 10 to 17, if you remember, Jesus calls the disciples to himself. He calls 12, supplanting the 12 tribes of Israel. And then they go out in ministry. They're advancing this kingdom, and what happens? They reject it. The Jewish leaders and the Jewish people reject and oppose this message of a coming kingdom. And then we come to chapters 18 and 19 and 20, and Jesus again turns his instruction to his disciples, and he begins to speak to them about the counterintuitive nature of the kingdom. It's just an inverted kingdom. You won't see it with human wisdom. You won't perceive it and understand it, culminating in the passage that we're about to read. We have these two blind men. The irony of this passage is the blind men are the only ones that see. All those with Jesus that see, they're blind. Let's look at Matthew chapter, chap, chapter 20, and we'll read 29 to 34. 29 to 34. Remember now, when you go in Matthew, and we'll begin in mid-September, chapters 21 all the way to 28, it's one week of ministry. Matthew dedicates 25% of his gospel on one week of ministry, but it is a week. So in 29, And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, 
They cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Okay, so let me just give you a little context of where we are right now. Jesus is leaving Jericho, uh, and he's traveling to Jerusalem, large crowd following him. Now, there was always large crowds with Jesus because he was doing miracles, and so that tends to attract people, spectators, those wanting to see something, those that were sick. So there's a large crowd. This is a bigger crowd, though, and the reason it's a bigger crowd is because they're going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Remember now, the Passover was a Jewish feast where God's mercy is displayed as he passed over the homes in Egypt where there was the blood of the lamb poured and he brought judgment upon the Egyptians. So the feast of Passover is a celebration of God's mercy in delivering Israel out of slavery in Egypt. So they're heading to Jerusalem. Now, the reason they're at Jericho is because Jericho is the last big city before Jerusalem. It's about 15 miles away. And so anybody traveling from the north of Israel in Galilee would go down through Jericho, stop at Jericho, be replenished, be resupplied, and then begin the last leg of their journey. This is where we meet these blind men. Now, it's not a shocker that there are blind men at Jericho. Jericho had an abundance of balsam trees, and from balsam trees an extract was drawn to make an ointment that was supposed to be good for various eye diseases. And so there was a disproportionate share of blind people in Jericho. Now, what are they doing on the roadside? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us, but Mark and Luke's gospel, who record the same story, tell us that they were beggars. They were beggars. And where will a beggar be? On the side of the road where all the traffic is. Now, this would have been a lucrative time for a beggar, and the reason is is because it was a religious holiday. And just like us giving more Christmas, that's when we give the most in December, so people gave the most around Passover. And so they were looking for these handouts, or at least that's what most of them would have been looking for. So that's kind of the background of this story. So I want to look at this passage now in two pieces. One will be the tragedy of blindness. I just want to talk about blindness because I think Matthew, when he says, behold, there were two blind men, he wants us to look at the blind men in the crowds. We're going to compare and contrast them. And then we're going to look at the triumph of mercy because there's kind of a special focus and, and spotlight on Jesus Christ here as a bringer of compassion and mercy. In fact, you could call him the, the incarnate mercy of God, we're going to see. So we're going to look at the tragedy of blindness, and we're going to look at the triumph of mercy. Okay, the tragedy of blindness, of blindness. Now, it wasn't uncommon, sanitary conditions, poor medical care, accidents, even women with venereal diseases could pass on. Infection to the child that would have blindness. Blindness was fairly common. But saying it was common didn't make it easy. You just think about it with me for a minute. To be blind, we think of just lack of sight, but it was much worse than that. I mean, think about the social dimensions of blindness. Social dimensions. At this time, you wouldn't be married. You wouldn't experience the joys and the pleasures of marriage. Uh, you, You were kind of considered a social outcast. It was difficult to have relationships with people. If you're blind, you're unable to to be in a family unless you were blessed enough to have a family that would take care of you. 
Um, but you were easily taken advantage of. You, were, uh, you could be made fun of. You could be poked with a stick. And what would you do? You couldn't defend yourself. You wouldn't know who was doing what to you. I mean, it was a very, very difficult thing. You know, you think about it. You hear somebody laughing, you'd never see a smile. You'd never see a child with a surprised look on their face. It was really difficult relationally to walk with this blindness. But not just socially. Think about financially. Unless you had a family take care of you, you had to beg. That was the only way to survive. You had to beg. It'd be, you couldn't have a job. You couldn't work. Well, if you didn't work, you wouldn't get paid. But it was even more than just social and financial. It was even spiritual. People considered the blind, by and large, the blind were somehow cursed of God. You even see this in John chapter 9, when the disciples and Jesus passed by a blind man. The disciples asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? In other words, they see the blindness and they're trying to figure out who did what wrong that God would punish him for this. So you were considered accursed of God, and which would also destroy any social connections you would have. So, I mean, the tragedy with blindness is pretty significant. And so in our story, he says, behold. So Matthew wants us to think about them, to focus on this, what the word behold means. Look, pay attention. There's two blind men. Now, when Jesus and the crowd is passing by, there's hundreds of people, and everybody's talking about this Jesus. And so the, uh, these blind men hear it, and they begin to cry out. You know, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, let me just help you, help you understand. That word cry out, that's the same little Greek word used when demons would shriek when Jesus would cast them out. It's the same word that an insane person, that shrill of a cry, or even a woman in, in travail at the, at the height of the pain of giving birth, I mean, you can imagine these men are crying out to Jesus. And nothing is held back. I mean, just for a minute, just with me, just in your imagination, just consider how you would be if you somehow fell off some cruise liner and you're, you've been floating in the ocean for 12, 14 hours. You're thirsty. You're hungry. You, you know you're not going to make it. You're going to die. And then all of a sudden there's some lights in the distance. And then they get closer. What do you think you're going to do? Over here. Do you mind changing? You will be, everything in you will be screaming to get the attention of that boat because that boat to you has salvation. And so these men are crying out. And the reason they're crying out is they're desperate. They know they have no hope. There is no human recourse for them. There is no human avenue, a way out of their hopelessness. They are crying out for mercy. That's all they're asking for. It's not unlike the Canaanite woman with the daughter who was dying. She said to Jesus, there's nothing to do. No doctors could help. She said, Lord Jesus. She said, have mercy on me, son of David. She said the same thing as the beggars. Or the father in Matthew 17, who had the son that was demonized, kept throwing himself into the fire, destroying him. He just said, have mercy on me. There's something about mercy. When you ask for mercy, you're admitting you have no claim on the person giving it. When you ask for mercy, you know that you aren't bringing anything that would warrant that to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't ask for mercy. See, the thing about mercy is it's totally wrapped up in the goodness of the one that you're asking. That's Jesus. 
So the only one you ask mercy for is you're trusting that there is goodness in that one that they might give you mercy. But I think what's ironic, and maybe just underneath the surface of this text, is they didn't ask for healing. They didn't ask at first to have their eyes fixed. They asked for mercy. Why? I'd propose to you that their blindness has led them to see that the real problem is they need to be forgiven by God. They need to be reconciled to God. The big problem is not I can't physically see, but I'm distant and separated from God, and so they're asking for mercy. You see the exact same thing in Luke chapter 15. When Jesus explains about salvation, he says, two men went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. He goes right up and says, Lord, thank you that I'm not like these other sinners. And then there's a tax collector in the back of the temple who's just beating his breast saying, Lord, have mercy on me. And Jesus said, he's the one that went home forgiven. He's the one that went home sacrificed. I think that these blind men were asking for forgiveness. And I think you see that because it's combined with this faith. Look at how they call to him. They say, have mercy on us, son of David. The word son of David, that's a, a title. It's a designation. The Jews at the time would have used that for the Messiah, the one that was going to come from God. In other words, all through the Old Testament, we knew there was a rupture. You guys, we look now at life and the disintegration of life and the conflicts we have. So did they. And and they knew that the rupture of the world was caused by the fall of man in Genesis 3. God promised one would come. And so they were looking for a Messiah, a deliverer. And there was a promise made to David, King David, in 2 Samuel 7, where he says, that I will bring forth a son from you, and that son will have a kingdom that will be eternal. It will be established forever. And this son that was coming from David is the same son or servant in Isaiah who would come and bear our sin and our shame and our guilt and redeem us. So these Jews were looking for one to come to be a deliverer and a savior. And so when they're calling, I'm sure they didn't understand everything about Jesus, but they understood enough that he was the one from God He was the son of David. He was bringing a kingdom. He was bringing redemption. He was bringing forgiveness. We want to have his mercy. And you see their faith evidence as they persisted after him. You know, if a couple hundred people in a crowd start shouting at me to shut up and rebuke me to not say, that's pretty intimidating. But you know, for them, they kept pressing forward. Their faith was moving them in opposition to the crowd to keep calling out. The the, the tragedy of blindness was not for them. They had the best vision. They saw Christ. But look with me at the crowds for a moment. The crowds are following Jesus. Why? Well, perhaps out of curiosity. Maybe they were just looking for a spectacular event, another miracle to occur. Maybe there were some with political interests. Remember now, Jesus did the bulk of his ministry in Galilee, and these travelers were probably from Galilee because the Galileans, they would head south, hit Jericho, and then go to Jerusalem. And so they probably had heard about the fame. They had heard about the miracles. Maybe they saw him They, they saw him as a healer, maybe a revolutionary. Maybe they thought he was going to establish, you know, he was going to set up his kingship in Jerusalem and cast the Romans out. But they were following him, but they didn't see Jesus as Messiah. And the reason I would say that to you is because when these blind men were calling out to the son of David, they were rebuking them and they were silencing them. Now, I imagine that these men knew they had needs, the crowd, 
you know, they didn't have it all together. Maybe they were hoping Jesus would be a political change agent. Or maybe he would bring about some change in, in some other social issue of the day. But they didn't see him as the Messiah. They didn't see Jesus as the Messiah sent to save the broken, the blind, and the weak. I think you also see that they don't see Jesus as this Messiah because they're not paying homage to him. They're not repenting. They're not asking for mercy. I mean, if they're with the one who is from God to establish an eternal kingdom, you'd think that there'd be some degree of worship given. I don't think they saw it. I don't think that they were. They didn't see their need as one of forgiveness. They saw their need as one of change politics, change the financial structure of our world. They didn't see their need. You know, they're the ones that are blind. This is a tragedy of blindness. The tragedy of blindness is that the blind don't see that they're blind. They can't see that they're blind, and they don't. They don't see their need to be forgiven. They don't see their greatest need. In fact, Paul says it this way, about the darkness that we have when we don't see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, folks, this is all of our issues. For all of us here, what keeps people from becoming a Christian or entering the faith is usually not a lack of facts. It's a lack of desperation. It's, it's a lack of knowing that we are without hope, save in Jesus Christ. I mean, a lot of people, maybe perhaps you, many will affirm Jesus is the Son of God. Many will affirm that he died on a cross. But there's no desperation that if I don't have Christ, if I don't have his mercy to bring forgiveness to me, then I have no hope. I mean, you can perhaps even spot um, Spout out the gospel facts. But it's not the facts that's the problem. It's this recognition that we are broken sinners. You know, the old expression is, how can I be so bad when I feel so good? You know, if you feel so good, it's hard to sense human depravity. It's hard to understand it. I mean, have you come to a place of understanding, truly understanding, when you look at yourself, feeling overwhelmed when you consider the holiness of God and you consider your own sinfulness that you are desperate for Jesus Christ to save you? Or do you feel, I mean, that's why the lack of facts don't keep us from the kingdom. It's more of our pride and our self-sufficiency, our sense of goodness. We have this sense of goodness. That's the irony of the men's blindness, I would argue, that their blindness, their physical suffering, and this is something to remember for us, that God will bring suffering into life at the physical realm so as to alert us to spiritual dangers. So their physical blindness revealed to them a spiritual blindness which prompted them to ask for mercy. This is what Tim Keller writes in his book on suffering. It really is an outstanding book on walking through suffering, probably one of the best, most recent books on suffering. He says this, Our faith is largely abstract and intellectual and not very heartfelt. We may believe cognitively that we are sinners saved by God's grace, but our hearts actually function on the premise that we're doing quite well, that we're more decent or open-minded or hardworking or loving or sophisticated than others. We have many blemishes in our character. We're too fragile under criticism or too harsh in giving it. We are bad listeners or ungenerous to people. We think foolish or too impulsive too timid or cowardly or too controlling or unreliable. 
but we are largely blind to these things, even though they darken our own lives and harm other people. Then suffering comes along. Timidity, cowardice, selfishness, self-pity, tendencies towards bitterness and dishonesty, all of these impurities of soul are revealed and drawn out by trials and suffering, just as a furnace draws the impurities out of unrefined metal ore. He says, finally, we can see who we really are. So for these blind men, they saw who they really were from the tragedy of blindness. But for those people that had it all together, had no issues, they never saw who they really were. They never saw their real need. See, I forget who the author, I think it was R.C. Sproul, said, the world is shocked that God would not love us. The Bible is shocked that God would love us because of who we are. And, and this is the rub here. The tragedy of blindness is, what group are you in? I mean, are, are, you, are you admittedly a blind man like John Newton? I was blind, but now I see because of his grace and his mercy. Or are you still clinging to the shred of goodness that I'm, I'm not like, I'm not as bad as these other people? You know, the quickest way to, to test yourselves is, what do you trust? If you were to die today and just stand before God, what would be your greatest hope? Where would you be resting all of your weight? Would it be on, well, I haven't done this and this and this, or would it be on the merits of Christ? As Luke read, the merits of Christ that soar so far above the sins of, of men. So where are you? It's a compare and contrast. Now, if you're a Christian here, when have you last reflected on his mercy? I mean, when have you stood in amazement that he would have saved you? Have we become so sanctified that we have forgotten the massive mercy we needed? I mean, can we not rejoice? If you're a Christian, can you not rejoice that he was merciful to you? That you were blind, but now you see? Can you not stop and just thank him? Say, apart from your mercy, I would forever be a blind man. Wandering around, begging for help, never getting out of the hole. For the Christian, for the non-Christian here, I, I would encourage you to think about what will, how well do you see? How strong is your vision? So that's kind of the tragedy of blindness. It, you know, I think Matthew's trying to paint us which group are you in? But now let's look for a minute at Jesus because it was the desperation of these blind men that moved the heart of Jesus to give mercy. Remember now, desperation, a need for God, moves a heart of Christ towards compassion. So here you have this crowd kind of moving forward, all the commotion, all the noise, and then Jesus hears these cries of these blind men. Now, I'm telling you they're screaming, but I'm also telling you there's hundreds of people walking along a path. That's a lot of noise, a lot of people moving. But Jesus hears it. Look with me at the text real quick, because what's amazing, in 32, it says, and stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want for me to do? I mean, don't you see here at least that Jesus is the quintessential servant? He, he's on mission from God. He is the Redeemer. He's bringing about the whole redemptive plan of God. All of God's plans are resting on the shoulders of Christ. That's why in Isaiah 9 it says a government rests upon his shoulders. He's establishing the redemption of the world. He is going to cosmically, he's going to renew all of cosmic creation. 
Everything rests on Christ. There's nothing that can stop him from his mission. No governmental authority, no religious authority. Nothing can stop Christ, not even a betrayer close to him like a brother. Nobody can stop him, and yet it says he stopped. He stopped to the cries that he heard. I mean, doesn't it shock you? I mean, think about how hurried and, and how diligent you are. Think about some of us are so tied to the schedule that we've got to get these things done. And he's on this redemptive mission to bring about a change in the entire world, and he stops. And he listens to a bunch of outcasts, these social undesirables, the kind that we wouldn't even look at if we saw them. And he stops and he serves them. What would you like me to do for you? That's, a serv- That's what servants say. How can I serve you today? Does it surprise you that he would say it? Just look in your Bibles back at 28. He said, the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And here he is serving. But, but let, me, let me just add another layer for you. While the minds of all these pilgrims are at the celebration of Jerusalem, it's going to be a major party. There would be between two and 300,000 people flowing into Jerusalem. It would have been a blast. That was on their mind, on his mind. was Passover means he was going to be the lamb that was going to be sacrificed. He's not leaving Jerusalem. That's it for him. He knows he's going to go and be the lamb of God. He knows that this is when God will place the sins of his people on Christ. This is when God brings his righteous wrath to punish the son for our sins. This is when he knows he's going to be accursed of God, separated somehow from the Father that he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what's on Jesus' mind. And he says, what can I do for you? It's pretty incredible. When I'm in a rush, or if I have a problem, self-pity is really close at hand, and I can turn right to my woes, and I don't give a care about people's problems. But not him. What can I do for you in the midst of that? He's the quintessential servant. But not just that. Look at his compassion. When they tell him, it says, in pity, he touched their eyes. Now, that word for pity, we kind of think of pity as a ah, tough break. I'm really sorry. I mean, that was a bad break that you went through. You kind of feel bad for the person. Uh, but, you know, it hasn't really affected me per se. But I am sorry for you. I love you. But I, I, bad break. But this word, this Greek word pity, is more of a visceral gut feeling. It's like, you know, your, your, your stomach just knotted up. That you're really suffering for this person. Uh, let, me try to give you a, uh, let me try to give you an analogy. So you're going to drive home today. You go on 540. You take one of the exits. And there's a man there. And he's older. And he's kind of bearded up. And he's holding a sign that says, God bless you, and, and he's looking for money, and you're going to look at him, and you may pray for him, you may give him something, and you're going to kind of feel bad for him. This is an older guy, tough break, and boy, that's it's, it's the times we're in, you know? And then you drive down the road, 100, maybe 500 yards away, easily our minds slip off to, I've got to get gas for the mower, and I've got to get that thing at the grocery store, and, and you pretty much move on. And that's kind of our version of pity. Okay, but let's play the scene again. But when you pull up, uh, you kind of notice you know the guy. He looks familiar to you. And then all of a sudden in time, it happens to be your son that's, been, that's left you four years ago. And all of a sudden you see him now holding the sign. 
what would you do? Wouldn't you be crushed by that? All of a sudden you recognize, that's my son. And all of a sudden now, you're not forgetting it 100 yards down the road or 500 yards down the road. I mean, your compassion would overwhelm you. You want to do something. You want to move. Compassion in the Bible moves us into action. It isn't a feeling per se. It's an action. It moves us. That's what it does with Jesus. He touches the man's, these two men's eyes. They probably hadn't been touched in years. You know, the human touch is so sweet. They probably hadn't, but he touches them. You know, Jesus isn't a distant healer. He doesn't do it from a big platform in white gowns and kind of pronounces healings over everybody. He gets close. He touched people. He touched Peter's mother-in-law, touches a leper, a woman with a bleeding issue touches him. Do you see the compassion that he touches them? He didn't have to touch them. He could have spoken healing to them, but he wanted to, to feel the compassion, so he touches them. I mean, he is a compassionate Savior. His compassion produces things. And so we see him as a quintessential servant. We see him as a compassionate Savior, but now we see him as powerful. He touches his eyes, and what happens? Immediately, it says they're healed. Immediately. It, it wasn't incremental, it wasn't a process, it wasn't over time, it wasn't apply this ointment to your wound for six months. It isn't like that. It was instantaneous, full healing, regeneration of the eyes. Eyes that didn't work now work. Boom, it just works perfectly. And he did it with a touch. And it was right then, right there, immediate, incredible, full, everything. And that's a powerful miracle. Can anybody do that? You won't find anybody in the Old Testament that ever healed a blind man. Or a blind woman. You won't find anybody in the New Testament. Only Jesus. He's the only one that heals the blind. And that was promised back in Isaiah 42. This Messiah would heal the blind. He would give them sight. He would let them see. This is the power of Jesus. But the real power is not in the physical healing. All the physical healings in the Bible are always pointing to a spiritual healing that God is doing or that God has already done. Whether it's raising the dead, it's pointing to the resurrection, or giving sight to the blind, or hearing to the deaf, or speech to the, the one who cannot speak. They're all pointing to a greater miracle that he's doing. The miracle that it points to is that they had sight to see the glory of God in the face of Christ as the Messiah. And they came to him seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. That's the miracle. The vision that they picked up, that was just confirming what had already been done. You say, well, where do you see that? Well, again, we look at Mark's gospel. Mark and Luke tell the same story, different angle. Here's what Mark says in chapter 10, 52. He says, and Jesus said to them, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. Then it says, immediately they regained sight and followed. The gaining of the sight follows Jesus' pronouncement that they have been saved. That, 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 that little word saved means that they've been delivered from, from sin, from darkness. They can now see that they're part of the community. They're now part of the kingdom. You see the same dynamic. If you remember back in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is preaching in a house. It's packed. This man who was paralyzed had four friends, and these friends carried him to Jesus. But they couldn't get in the house. The house was too jammed, so they go up on the roof. Back then, roofs were made of mud, and so they dug a hole, and they lowered the man before Jesus. You remember the story? And what is Jesus, what's the first thing Jesus says when he sees the man? The man's on a mat. He can't walk. So what's his greatest need? He comes down, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. 
It's like, you missing something? The guy can't walk. He says, your sins are free. Jesus goes after the greatest need, which is reconciliation with God through faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. The only reason Jesus healed him is because the Pharisees in the room said, who are you? They were murmuring among themselves. Who is he? To, what authority does he have to forgive sins? And so he says, he says this, just prove to you that I have authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, pick up your mat and go. And the guy got up and walked out. The healing was only confirming the greater work of forgiveness. We don't understand what it means to be forgiven by a holy and perfect God. We have no conception of that. We have no, because we just think, eh, I say forgiveness. Let bygones be bygones. No, no, no. It took the death of the Son of God to bring about the forgiveness. That's far, it's of a far greater order than just regenerating an eye. God can regenerate eyes all the time, anytime he wants, for a bazillion people. But to bring forgiveness would require the death of his son. And this is why Jesus Christ is able to extend the mercy, because he's the one that's going to, if you will, earn the mercy. He knows he's about to go to a cross, and he's going to bear our sin and our shame and our guilt, and that God's going to bring down wrath, and God will remain just by punishing the Son, but then he's going to bring mercy to us. So for Jesus, for us, Jesus is the incarnation of God's mercy. When you look at Christ, you see God is rich in mercy. His mercy far extends beyond our sin. That's why he can make this pronouncement. So what do we do with this? Well, I think, I, think it, I think we would be helped to go back to the question, what do you want me to do for you? This is Jesus Christ asking people, what do you want me to do for you? When I read that, I must tell you that my mind went to the genie in the bottle, thinking that, you know, you rub the bottle, and a genie comes out, and the genie says, you have one request, Master. This is what I used to think about as a kid, and I'd think. Finally, it took, I was about 24 when I got to this point, but I started thinking, I'll ask for 100 requests, and that way I'll never run out, right? I'll get everything I want. On the, maybe the second or third one, I'll ask for 100 more. And, and that's the way our minds think. But when you consider Jesus as the Son of Man, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? I would ask you to answer that question in your mind. What would you say? What are you thinking right now? If Jesus were to stand before you, what do you want me to do for you? What will you say to him? Are you going to say something like a bigger house, better financial arrangement, better job, a spouse, a child, more well-behaved children? What would you say? Because however you would answer that, it's going to reveal what you love the most or what you fear the most. It's going to reveal the idolatries that take up resonance at the seat of our life rather than God. For if, you're, if you're a person here who is on the fringe of Christianity, you're looking at it, maybe you've been raised in a Christian home, you haven't really committed to Jesus Christ, you, you haven't fully embraced this idea that you need him, that you're desperate for him, I, I would ask you to consider asking Jesus. It, this is really just, the men were praying out loud, is what they were doing. Ask him, give me a desperation for you. I mean, maybe you don't even see the value of the forgiveness. You think that healing an eye is actually harder than healing a soul. Ask him for desperation. Ask him to take away the weight of your guilt and your burden and your sin and your shame. Ask him to take it away. Ask him to reveal himself to you. Ask him. 
I mean, he says in the book of James, you do not have because you do not ask. So ask him. If you're a Christian here, I would encourage you, this is an incredible gift to us, to have Jesus say, what can I do for you? I mean, what will you ask him? Can we not ask him to say, I want a greater love for Christ than I have for myself. I want a greater zeal for heaven. I want power to overcome sin. I, 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 I want a greater boldness in my faith. I, I, want a greater, I want a greater love for the lost. I want a greater love for the broken. I, I, I want a greater look towards what heaven is really going to be like. I mean, ask him. I was uh, Jonathan Edwards, most of the sermons, when we think of Jonathan Edwards, we think of one sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And um, you can see him kind of perched over his pulpit, just kind of bringing down this hard word of God's holiness. He also preached a sermon called The Excellencies of Christ. And, 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 and through part of it, he was trying to warm people's hearts to just the glory of Christ. Here's some of the things he asked. He asked his church, this is back in mid-18th century. He says, what are you afraid of that you dare not venture your soul upon Christ? Are you afraid that he can't save you? That he is not strong enough to conquer the enemies of your soul? Are you afraid that he won't be willing to stoop so low as to take gracious notice of you? I mean, look at him, bound with his back uncovered to those that would kill him. And behold him hanging on the cross. Do you think that he had condescension enough to stoop to these things? And not for you? What is there that you desire that should not be in a Savior that is not in Christ? What can you think of that would be more encouraging that is not found in the person of Christ? I mean, ask him, what do you want me to do for you? And then keep asking because you're desperate for him to answer it. But don't just seek him, savor him. Savor him. Think about this mercy. I mean, go home today. Spend just five minutes of the life that he's given you, his five minutes, and just think about the mercy. Go back through your life and consider all the times that you would have gone left when his spirit drew you right. I mean, even your own salvation. Did you, do any of us think that our ingenuity brought us to a place of understanding Christ in a saving way? He, we love because he first loved us. I mean, I mean, just savor what he's done for you. You know, Luke's gospel says when these blind men were healed, they went away glorifying God. Spend time glorifying God for his person, for his son, Jesus. This is what um, Charles Spurgeon, another 19th century pastor in England, wrote. Think about this when you're savoring him and you're praying to him. He said, at the voice of prayer, the son of God paused. Believing cries can hold the feet of the Son of God. That's beautiful. Your cries hold his feet so that he stays by you. And then last, I would just say, seek to serve in some measure. I didn't have time to develop this idea. I'm just going to throw it out and trust the Spirit of God to work it in your life. But those who have been benefactors of rich mercy should be the largest distributors of that same mercy. I mean, those of us who have dined deeply at the table of his kindness, for us to not want to extend kindness, there is a clear struggle there. I mean, be generous with the mercy that you've been given. 
that you would just distribute it. I don't know what situation is going to come in your life this week or what it's going to look like or who's going to need the mercy that you're going to be reminded to give, but they'll be there. There'll be a situation, it'll be with a child or a spouse or a co-worker or something. But, but let's, let's drink deeply from the well of his mercy so that we can share it generously with others. So let's take a minute now and just, just think about the tragedy of blindness. And folks, if you've been given sight, then rejoice with me. If, you're, if your vision is still hazy, then seek him for sight. And then let's think about the triumph of his mercy. He didn't come in with power to change. What did Jesus Christ bring to change the world? He brought mercy. And let's dwell upon that and think about that. And then um, uh, Elder is going to close us in prayer.